This is the season of miracles. It's a season of ancient prophecies fulfilled. A season of signs and wonders and portents and omens. It's a season of angels, lots of angels. Angels paying visits, angels speaking for God, angels silencing skeptics. Angels saying, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. Angels gathered in the heavens, angels singing, angels telling the shepherds where to find the newborn king. A season of shepherds. A season of magi, or magi, or wise men, wise guys. A season of bright stars. A season of cattle lowing, oxen, lambs keeping time. A season of pa-rum-pa-pum-pum. Noel, 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 Noel. And I was going to try to do glow. Well, okay, that worked out okay. <laughs> magical season. A magical season in which the old story of the gospel infects the broader culture in ways that we couldn't make happen if we tried. The Christmas spirit is still strong enough to every once in a while poke its head up above the layers of tinsel and wrapping paper and raise its voice over above the din of commercials and carols and cash registers and kachinging and just enough to give everyone a moment's pause, a temporary breaking of the spell that's cast by the forces of capitalism and materialism and all those other powers that conspire as they sit beside the fire, seeking to wheedle our last few pennies from our trembling hands. And that spirit has some unlikely allies in Linus and Charlie, Rudolph and the drummer boy, jolly old St. Nicholas, Bing and Danny, and of course, saintly George Bailey. When we find ourselves moved by such cultural icons, I'd like to think it's because Somewhere within all the sentiment and the romance and the tear-jerking, there lurks a little bit of the miraculous, a spiritual residue left over from those days of old when all the world was to be taxed and no room was in the inn and all was calm and all was bright round yon virgin, mother and child, holy infant so tender and mild. Oh, there are Scrooges among us. The professional cynics and skeptics and naysayers who take a perverse delight in unplugging your Christmas tree and melting your white Christmas and going on at length about the absurdity of it all, people who seem to positively puff up with joy at another opportunity to explain all the good and sound and scientific reasons why virgins can't have babies and angels can't possibly exist and stars that big and bright, well, they just don't appear out of nowhere. People who scoff at the sentimentality of it all, the fakery, the manufactured cheer. People who resist the call to be more generous, more kind, more gentle, more jolly. Are there no prisons? And the union workhouses? They cost enough. And those who are badly off must go there. If they would rather die, they'd better do it and decrease the surplus population. There's still plenty of Scrooges to go around. Though these days they tend to wear three-piece suits and run for Congress and um, are slick and subtle in the ways of a certain serpent um, from another old story. But most of, us, most of us are sooner or later drawn once again into the joyful, wistful spirit of the season. Perhaps not as early as the folks at the mall would like us to in late October, for example. But the season's pull is hard to resist and eventually wins most of us over. And so we're drawn again into this season of miracles, suspending our disbelief, leaving our skepticism at the door, and slowly, slowly edging our way to the mistletoe and hoping against hope for love to step on up and give us a kiss. 
the stories that we tell in this season, like the one from Matthew's Gospel, are altogether miraculous and altogether familiar, so familiar, in fact, that we can easily take them for granted. Now, I know that sort of contradicts everything I've said to this point, but I still think it's true. The Advent stories, even the Christmas story, are so well-known to most of us, so familiar, that we can begin to take them for granted. Not so much because they lose their spark or their appeal, but more likely because they have become so closely connected to a certain season, a certain time of year, that they become like that old, comfortable, moth-eaten sweater that we pull out every winter, one we wear only around the house and would not consider wearing out in public, the sweater we put away when the company's coming over, the sweater we stow away when the season is over. The stories of the season, miraculous and wonderful as they are, have become so closely associated with one time of year that we don't even think to ask ourselves what relevance they may have for the rest of the year. We learn to see them in the same way that we see Christmas trees and eggnog and tinsel as pretty ornaments that help to make the season bright. And I suppose that's understandable. I mean, really, who has the energy to stay holly jolly 52 weeks a year? Who has the time to roast chestnuts 24-7 or go wassailing every weekend? I mean, how many times can you really sing the first Noel without wishing you could finally get to the second or third? It's not reasonable to expect us to hold on to these stories. It's, it's not reasonable to expect us to live in the Christmas spirit 365 days a year any more than it would be to expect us to abide in Lenten darkness all year long. And yet, and you knew there was going to be an end yet, and yet, if the incarnation is indeed God's first overt move in the redeeming of creation, then it behooves us to work at finding ways to move beyond our familiarity and to question our relegating of these stories to just a few short weeks in December. Not to pump up the volume on the Christmas music in an attempt to hold on to the wonder just a little bit longer, but, but instead to gather these stories, too, into the day-to-day living out of our faith, to embed them more deeply into our practices, or to have them embed us more deeply into the biblical narrative. In short, it would serve us well to consider what these stories have to say to us in April and August and October, to listen past the jingle bells, and so perhaps hear a whisper of the gospel. So that's what I went looking for this week as I spent time in the company of Joseph and the angel, and here's what I think I found. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. That's amazing. You know, maybe the reason this story has become so easy to leave behind every December 26th is that we've learned to focus on all the weird and wonderful bits. We focus on the virgin bearing God's child. We focus on an angelic visitation and proclamation. We focus on God coming to human beings in their dreams. We focus on the announcement of a Messiah coming into the world and fulfillment of something spoken by the prophet Isaiah centuries before. We focus on the miraculous, the weird and wonderful bits, when what really ought to draw our attention, what ought to get our hearts racing, what ought to surprise the Christmas stockings right off our mantles are the mundane, ordinary, day-to-day, nose-to-the-grindstone details because or so it seems to me. The truly miraculous aspect of this story is not what happens in the dream 
or even before the dream, the aspect of this story that ought to carry over into our daily lives, our daily efforts to live faithfully, is what this human being, Joseph, did in response to all the miraculous, weird, and wonderful bits. Miraculous as all those bits are, the true and lasting miracle, I think, is what happens later, what happens after Joseph wakes up. The miracle is that when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the Lord commanded him. He woke up and did all three things the angel of the Lord had told him to do. He married Mary. He allowed her to remain celibate until, while she was pregnant, and he named the baby Jesus. Or, in other words, Joseph laid aside his masculine pride and fear of public disgrace. He laid aside his masculine sexual prerogatives, and he gave up his masculine right to name his own child. And for a first-century Jewish man, that was an awful lot of laying aside. And that, I believe, is the real miracle in this story and the one that ought to keep it from becoming just another sentimental and heartwarming tale that we tell once a year. After a night of unbelievable, mind-blowing dreaming, Joseph gets up and starts to live as if what happened the night before really happened. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he did so by learning to set aside his own privileges and to offer shelter to a young woman who, it turns out, he really didn't know at all. Joseph woke up and acted in love, in obedience, and without regard for saving face or protecting his dignity. Now, maybe it was easy for him. Maybe he was a naturally sweet and compassionate man. Matthew hints at that by revealing that Joseph had already determined in advance that he was not going to act within his rights as a male and publicly denounce Mary. And so perhaps he was able to graciously accept the angel's word and just go ahead and live it out. Or maybe it was the hardest thing he'd ever done. Most of us, I suspect, have some experience of being disappointed in love. I doubt many of us have experienced it in such dramatic fashion with the other man or other woman being none other than the living God. But still, most of us, sons and daughters, mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, and friends of every age, we have all experienced some disappointment in love. And we know how hard it can be, how impossible it can feel to stay connected to the one who's disappointed you. The smaller disappointments that take us time to get over and move on, the larger disappointments that require a significant rearrangement of the relationship in order to regain trust, and then those cataclysmic disappointments from which relationships never really recover. We know these things, right? We know these things, or we know somebody who does. And so we can imagine how hard it must have been for Joseph how hard it may have been even to look at Mary and her growing belly, how painful to forego the touches and embraces that can serve to smooth over so many of rough edges, how hard to believe, to really believe that all of his pain, all of his shame, all of his doubt serves some higher divine purpose. We can easily imagine ourselves throwing in the towel, walking away, or in some other way changing our minds when confronted with the day-to-day -day facts of being awake and obedient. It's much harder to believe that the miracle described in Matthew did in fact happen and that Joseph awoke from his dream and did everything the angel of the Lord commanded. 
Now, much as I prefer to believe that Joseph found it easy to gracefully obey in the daytime what he had heard at night, I suspect he had a very hard time of it, as hard as we do when we are asked to do something way out of the ordinary for the sake of the things we saw in our dreams. But I hope and pray that over time, Joseph found the necessary strength or, or grace or whatever it took to not just grit his teeth upon awakening, but to finally find himself in love, not only with Mary, not only with the children that they had together, but also with that firstborn son, Jesus, the one whose coming broke his heart and whose dying would someday save it. And sisters and brothers, that's the part of this gospel story that continues to shine when all the other bits get left behind, when the lights are put away and the tree's been recycled and the last cookie's been consumed. That's not the dream or the angel or even the message about the source behind Mary's pregnancy that stands out in bold colors this morning, wonderful and amazing and larger than life, though they may be. No, what stands out in sharp relief, what is odd enough and unfamiliar enough to draw our attention is the simple fact of awakening from an angelic visitation and then getting to work living out our calling in the day-to-day, mundane, ordinary, not at all otherworldly business of being human. And this is the image I'd like to leave us with this morning, an image of a real-life human being getting out of bed and behaving as if everything the angel told him was true. An ordinary human being waking up and proceeding to do something impossible simply because God told him to. An ordinary human being who began that very morning to lay down his pride, to lay down his prerogatives, his place in the community, and to take in, to love and honor and respect a young woman who'd broken his heart. An ordinary human being, someone just like us, who gave himself over entirely to the call of God in order to play his small part in the coming reign of God. Sisters and brothers, my prayer for you and my hope is that you will not forget about dear Joseph when the last carol stops, that we'll all remember his obedience on the morning after the miracle, and that we'll carry that memory of obedience into the coming year, an example too beautiful, too profound, too convicting to simply put away in the attic until next year. I pray that we will all wake up when the season of miracles is ended and set about living like what we saw and heard and sang about is altogether true. May God make it so. Amen.